Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics from the campus of Michigan State University. I'm your host, Peter Alegi. I'm sorry to report that my co-host and friend Peter Lim suffered a broken arm last week in the line of duty and is temporarily out of commission. All of us here at Africa Past and Present wish him a speedy and full recovery. Today's program uses President Bush's recently completed visit to five African countries as a springboard to discuss U.S. foreign policy in Africa with David Wiley, the director of the African Studies Center at Michigan State University since 1977. Dave Wiley is professor of sociology and has a long list of accomplishments, which I'm not going to read off uh, on this podcast, just a couple of highlights. He is the co-coordinator of the Consortium for Title VI National Resource Centers on Africa. He's the principal investigator in a whole number of multimedia projects, including the African eJournals Project, the South African Film and Video Project, and the Program on the Lakes of East Africa. Dave is also the founder and past president of the Association of Concerned Africa Scholars, and also past president of the African Studies Association in the United States. He was very active in the American anti-apartheid movement, particularly through his leadership in the Southern African Liberation Committee in Lansing, Michigan. Welcome, Dave. Thanks for coming on the program. President George Bush visited Africa from February 15th to 21st. Uh, He went to Tanzania, Rwanda, Benin, Ghana, Liberia, and right up to uh, the beginning of the trip, there was very little coverage of this seemingly significant event in U.S. media. According to one source that I consulted, there was only one story in the mainstream press about Bush's uh, visit to Africa before February 15th. Uh, I went to the White House website and noticed that uh, the trip was being used to basically trumpet what uh, the Bush administration calls an unparalleled partnership strengthening democracy, overcoming poverty, and saving lives. Uh, Is this what the trip was about, David? Well, I think that uh, it's uh, it's what the trip was about in the official speak of Washington. and indeed, the one thing one does have to say is there has been increased uh, contributions in the last decade from the United States in the area of HIV, AIDS, uh, and in the case of malaria, some of that from private sources like the Gates Foundation. But um, the, uh, the biggest amount of uh, contribution to Africa and to uh, U.S. expenditure for Africa has been for the military. It is um, a period of increasing uh, U.S. military presence in Africa is a period of increased training, the flow of equipment, uh, although I will have to say that the U.S. is no longer number one in, in, in uh, shipping military equipment to the African continent. Uh, Russia has displaced us, uh, and China is getting in there as well. But for many years, uh, the small arms and light weapons, the the weapons that are the choice of militias and, and private armies that, uh, that rape and kill and plunder um, have been the, the, uh, the main export. What's driving this militarization of U.S. foreign policy in Africa? Well, I think there's a, there's a very general answer to that in the first case. I, I actually was astonished myself. I did a little search um, uh, on this. The United States uh, spends more 
on uh, military expenditures than all the rest of the world combined. It has become the, uh, the mode of solving problems that if there's a problem in Afghanistan, if there's a problem in the Middle East, it is the military solution, the smart bomb, uh, the militias, the arming and training of local armies is our answer. And there's a very small emphasis, uh, much too small, on diplomacy, on building linkages uh, among our Middle East friends who don't want to see uh, Islamic uh, fundamentalism in Afghanistan uh, or Iran or Iraq, and who will join us with intelligent uh, civilian diplomatically based programs that aren't trying to solve the problem with military might. But it has become our way of dealing. $500 billion a year as of 2004 with the Iraq war is probably more than that. But that $500 billion, um, that, excuse me, $623 billion for the U.S., $500 billion for the rest of the world, uh, that is more than, uh, than all the rest of the world put together. In Africa, uh, specifically, uh, the belief is that Africa is, uh, as some of the Department of Defense maps show, a zone of instability, uh, especially the Sahelian zone from Senegal across to uh, Ethiopia, the Horn of Africa in general, Sudan, Djibouti, Eritrea, Kenya. Uh, and uh, that zone of instability needs U.S. military presence, needs the arming of African uh, militaries and their training. Um, and in some of their uh, press releases, um, the uh, U.S. military even notes that there are problems of ethnic cleavages, such as we've just seen in Kenya uh, around the election there, that somehow the military will be relevant to, uh, to dealing with ethnic cleavages, which in fact need a civilian uh, skills of negotiation, conflict uh, uh, resolution. Um, and uh, the development of structures of peace. But, um, and then the other thing that The Economist uh, magazine in, in the UK and others have noted is that all of a the sudden there is a great appeal to the United States of the oil of West Africa especially, but also of Sudan and Chad, um, uh, other parts of the continent where we keep finding, but especially the Bight of Benin from Ghana around uh, through Nigeria, especially uh, Equatorial Guinea, uh, Cameroon, Gabon, and uh, Congo, um, uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo, and Angola. So uh, it's estimated that um, by next year, a fourth of our America's oil from foreign services uh, sources will be uh, will be from Africa and that that requires an increased U.S. military presence to guarantee stability. And for those listeners who don't know this, right, Africa is a very rich continent. It produces about 90% of the world's cobalt, 64% of its manganese, half of its gold, 40% of platinum, 30% of uranium, 20% of total petroleum oil, 70% of cocoa, 60% of coffee, uh, over 80% of coltan, uh, for those cell phone users out there, that's what makes the cell phone work, and 50% of the world's palm oil, phenomenally rich uh, continent from a natural resource perspective, and clearly U.S. foreign policy, uh, as, as David Wiley just indicated, is uh, aimed to uh, control um, the flow of those resources to benefit the United States. But again, national security and anti-terrorism efforts uh, seem to be very important. 
And apparently there is now uh, uh, an African command uh, being established for U.S. Uh, armed forces. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, AFRICOM, as it's called, maybe what its right. inspiration is or, or um, what level of operational ability it is right now? It's uh, a bit ironic that until recent years, U.S. Uh, military affairs in Africa were largely controlled from Stuttgart, Germany, uh, where the European command, the Eurocom, uh, was, was located. And what that mirrors, of course, is all during the colonial period, the U.S. Uh, doffed its hat to the European powers uh, as of the, uh, uh, the agreement early in the 19th century, that they would stay out of our affairs in Latin America and the Philippines, we would stay out of their African affairs. And so the uh, NATO and the U.S. military command in Europe became the main point for most of Africa. The Horn of Africa was seen as Middle East, and so that was what the U.S. military called CENTCOM, Central Command, right. and that was run out of Florida. That's where Iraq, Iran, and all of the turbulent zones of, of the uh, Middle East uh, are located and, and, uh, and governed by U.S. So AFRICOM represents a, uh, a new effort to uh, ramp up the attention to Africa, both diplomatically and with military personnel in the embassies in the area, and with increased uh, military presence, uh, symbolic of the U.S. is there and interested in the state of security affairs, of terrorist, uh, of conflict that might endanger uh, the zone, but many people would add endanger the zone and thereby American uh, access to these uh, riches that you've just uh, uh, have just listed here. It's interesting that one of the deputy commander of the European Command recently uh, said, well, for many years the, uh, the uh, U.S. fleet has shown its face primarily in the eastern Mediterranean um, and in the Indian Ocean as a projection of U.S. power uh, where uh, the areas of our greatest concern. But he said, I predict that in the next decade, the U.S. fleet will be up and down the west coast of Africa. And already that is taking uh, place with joint training uh, operations with the Nigerian and the Ghanaian Navy, uh, with presence there in Los Angeles, and with the U.S. exploring the, uh, the bases, as one uh, U.S. general noted, the thousands of military bases in Africa that can be used by the U.S. military should the need arise. That's an interesting aspect of this AFRICOM plan is that uh, so far it seems that the U.S. military forces will be using African countries' bases and not establishing uh, U.S. bases in Africa. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, those plans? Well, part of it has to do uh, with a, a U.S. military that is stretched thin. So we don't have the uh, human power to be on the ground in all these places or to build or maintain all of these uh, bases. There are many, many bases there from the British armies, the French, the Belgian uh, armies, all, their, all during history and those areas, for instance, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo which the US and Liberia, which the U.S. built up uh, during the Cold War years as um, uh, air bases and, and the like. The um, intent is to be light on bases and uh, heavy on mobility. And so the big U.S. base, where there are about a 7,000 uh, U.S. military base, is in Djibouti, over in the Horn of Africa, uh, right there sandwiched between uh, Eritrea and Ethiopia, uh, right next to um, the, the turbulent Middle East, but also as a point to um, interdict uh, the uh, alleged terrorists who 
uh, with al-Qaeda having at one time having had some presence in Sudan and now uh, allegedly um, in the Islamic courts movement in uh, Mogadishu in Somalia where just this last week the U.S. military had been chasing uh, alleged terrorists in southern Somalia uh, on the border with Kenya and so on. So, and that's, uh, so with, with um, Hercules gunships uh, coming in and U.S. Marines and uh, uh, close support uh, Air Force and military helicopters and the Warthog uh, Grumman A-2 uh, with a lot of focus upon uh, projecting a military presence and being there to, to uh, respond quickly. Now African leaders and African nation states don't seem terribly excited to be perceived to be helping the United States. The only country that I know of that has uh, openly supported the establishment of AFRICOM is Liberia, right? right. Uh, so, so what about from the African side? Uh, how is uh, this uh, AFRICOM proposal being handled? What do you see happening? Well, I think uh, Africa is raw these days with the disorder that was created, uh, first of all, by the colonial militaries. Because when the colonial powers in um, the 19th century split up uh, at the Berlin Conference, split up Africa, the first uh, form that they arrive with are the naval gunboats, and then comes their their uh, British or French or Belgian armies, and very quickly they recruit armies in neighboring countries to bring in to help conquer. So they put down the resistance in Nigeria or Ghana with Gambian forces, and the first thing they build is an army and then a police force, and then a court system, and then a prison system, uh, and, and all before uh, there are hospitals and clinics and schools and the like. So um, uh, the first Western governance presence is military, and the colonies are run largely by military governors. We wonder why Africa is not uh, more democratic. The model and for this the is particularly was true in the French colonies, uh, more so than the British ones. Right, but that's a very important point. That there's a long history of this kind of uh, militarization of uh, of governance, and it was the soldiers who got the better schools and the better hospitals, got the better diets. Um, Many of the first athletes were policemen and, and members of the armed forces stress, as right. well. And then uh, after that, we come to the Cold War, and the West comes in wholesale. Um, and uh, loads Africa with every form of military uh, munition. That's why in Angola today we have the largest limbless population in the world per capita with the landmines that the U.S. and Cuba and Russia brought into that, that uh, country. The AK-47 um, uh, rifle now is cheapest of all in Africa because there's so many of them, it's, it's depressed the market. The continent is awash with military arms of, of every sort that are very much available for uh, militias, for private armies, for anyone who wants them. You go down to the market and uh, uh, you can buy watermelons, or you can buy uh, corn and maize, and you can buy AK-47s. So all needed for survival all, in all some All needed places. for survival in some places, and it has led to some of the most horrendous uh, upheaval uh, across the continent, in a continent that is, we're learning from surveys here at Michigan State, are highly committed to democracy. But the context is that uh, those who don't have jobs, those who are hungry, can, those uh, teenagers who want a chance some power, can easily get arms and turn, uh, turn the life of others into uh, a horrible uh, situation. We have one province in eastern Congo 
two years ago, um, where with a private militia, it's estimated one province in one country, 29,000 women raped so badly that uh, there are hospitals being built actually to do the surgery that is needed to repair the damage of these horrendous uh, raids, all because of the barrel of the gun. You can take what you want regardless uh, of, of your uh, station in life. So uh, up and down the continent, you know, the African leaders have, have looked at the way that Israel and with U.S. and British support installed Idi Amin, the heinous dictator of Uganda, killed three-quarters of a million people, installed um, General Mobutu Sese Seko in the Congo as the America's man by assassinating the first leader, Lumumba, in, um, in the Congo. Uh, a man who raped and plundered a country that today doesn't have a paved road across it today. The man and who, uh, the term kleptocracy, right, and kleptocrat was named after. Right. Uh, raped the country of its resources and put them in his bank accounts in the Riviera in, uh, in, in, in Europe. Uh, as I say, in Angola, where we actually started civil wars because we wanted to beat up on the Cubans uh, when we couldn't do there. And with that, with that uh, horrible history what's in Sudan, which we armed to, to help turn into a fundamentalist state, in Somalia, which today is a stateless society because of the armaments that the, first the Soviets and then the U.S. Uh, put, in, uh, put a military dictator in power uh, to tear up a country. So, uh, and today, if you look across the continent, there are nine countries where there is active warfare and civil unrest are going on. The U.S. has been involved in providing military training and military uh, equipment in, in all of those. And so the African leaders say AFRICOM, a new focus on the military in Africa, a new U.S. Uh, presence in Africa, no thank you. This is not what we need. We urgently need peace. In fact, there's an interesting World Bank study that was done uh, three years ago that tried to predict the sources of positive development in Africa. And they measured population growth, they measured education, they measured um, the amount of education for women, etc., etc. Uh, they measured agricultural inputs and the development of food supplies, etc. They asked then, at the end of the day, what's the best predictor in Africa of growth and development? And the answer was, the only thing that mattered significantly was the absence of civil conflict, the absence of war. The setting that aside, and until that war is absent, none of the other classical measures, increasing education, increasing farmer assistance and fertilizer and uh, good growing techniques, uh, etc., communications, etc., none of those matter until civil conflict is in it. And that's what the continent now is caught in, is a period where out of the colonial period, the Cold War, and then left with strong militaries in the independence period, Every president has had to look over his shoulder and say, what are the soldiers doing? Are they well paid enough? Are they going to stay in the barracks? Are they going to toss me out? Because they've got the power to do so. In that kind of world, the U.S. coming with increased arms, increased military training, and a military headquarters in Africa is not what they see as a source of development. This is David Wiley for Africa past and present. I'd like to shift the conversation from this uh, very, very interesting topic of the establishment of AFRICOM by the United States uh, to the position of African studies scholars and African studies centers on uh, sort of U.S. military and intelligence activities and funding in Africa. Uh, just recently, on February 22nd, in the Chronicle of Higher Education, there was an article 
about a Fulbright scholar who says he was asked to spy while in Bolivia. And uh, this reminded me of uh, the kind of dangers and the kind of pressures that are often put on scholars such as ourselves uh, by governments, uh, not just the United States one, but here we're in the United States, so we'll focus on, on the U.S. government. Uh, and uh, I think this is a, this is a, a point that maybe we should uh, visit carefully. Um, you were the founder, or one of the founders, of the Association of Concerned Africa Scholars in the late 1970s. And um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, this, this history and uh, the action that you and, and others took and uh, what we should do today? Well, in the 1970s, um, we had had 15 or 20 years of African independence, but it had all gotten stuck on what was called Southwest Africa, later to be Namibia, the Portuguese territories of Angola, Mozambique, and Guinea-Bissau, South Africa, of course, and Rhodesia, and uh, later to become Zimbabwe. And um, it was clear that the U.S. government was co-opting as much of the scholarly community, and one might add journalists as well, uh, who were used as a source of uh, intelligence information. It was so common that when, under the Kennedy administration, the Peace Corps was established with the first speech right down here in Ann Arbor, calling for the Peace Corps, uh, one of the very first things that was insisted upon is that the Peace Corps must be separate from intelligence, and there must be a commitment from the administration to, to that, because they knew that these Peace Corps volunteers would be in danger if they were out there and thought to be spies. Right. Indeed, uh, a lot of us had experiences uh, of being th uh, seen as, um, as spies. When I was in working in Western Kenya in a social survey, I needed maps to find the villages to do surveys on to get attitudes towards the fishing industry there in western Kenya. The local district governor refused to allow me to have Kenya maps for fear that the CIA or the U.S. might invade western Kenya. Hmm. Uh, and so there was this suspicion of Americans all across. And at the same time, in that period, the U.S. was very much on the side of South Africa with a policy called constructive engagement. Um, and in the Reagan years especially, uh, that, that policy grew. And the uh, U.S. was surreptitiously giving support uh, to uh, anything to bleed support away from people they regard as communists, like Nelson Mandela, Robert Mugabe, um, and, uh, and others in Southern Africa. So given that scholars were being brought inside, and given that U.S. policy was on the side of white minority rule in Southern Africa, this group at Michigan State in the Kellogg Center um, met in a conference to talk about uh, Southern Africa and um, uh, democracy and freedom there. And at that time says, we cannot be quiet. We have to have a scholarly voice that has not just to be doing research and writing, as scholars are good at doing, but it has to actually say, what is the relevance of our perspectives on for policy? And then that came out, the Association of Concerned Africa Scholars, in the first instance with uh, Willard Johnson of MIT and um, Emmanuel Wallerstein as the first co-chairs. And um, uh, and then a, a, a program to address U.S. policy systematically for all the years thereafter. And was it an effective group in terms of how it influenced uh, U.S. Uh, foreign policy in Africa? And the, Marsh, and the activities I, of scholars. I, I think first of all, it uh, it led to the in the state and the Reagan State Department. It led to a commitment not to come to the African Studies Association meetings for uh, fear of the very loud and overt. 
criticism that would be voiced of U.S. policy there. So there was simply a distancing by the U.S. government. Um, the other thing that happened in this period uh, after ACAS was founded is in the early 80s, the Defense Intelligence Agency approached uh, several of the African Studies Centers, including the one here at Michigan State, and said, let us give you quite a lot of money, perhaps approaching half million dollars a year wow. for African Studies, which is, at that time, I think was five times our annual budget uh, for all fellowships and, and things. And uh, all you have to do is be on tap to provide reports on Africa for us uh, when we need them down then. Well, specifically, what do you want? Uh, well, we won't say now, we'll just down the line, we'll be wanting. So the four of the African Studies Centers at Boston University, Indiana, uh, Michigan State, and uh, I believe it was Wisconsin, uh, the directors got together and said, what are we going to do? We took it to our faculty, and our faculty said, the last thing we want is to break our partnership with our African colleagues, and if we go inside, if we're seen as being bedfellows of the intelligence and the military plans of our government uh, in Africa. That's the end of our research. In fact, it will hurt U.S. government interests because we won't be able to put on the shelf and in the uh, in articles and reports and speeches the material we get because we are inside African countries, inside governments, inside universities. With with, uh, so we don't want to give that up. So. We're not going to take uh, the military and intelligence money. It's to, we will sacrifice too much for ourselves and for our government if we uh, if we do that. So uh, the, the, that decision was made, and the uh, directors of all the Title VI centers, the twelve big African study centers from California to uh, Massachusetts to Florida and the like, got together, voted that we will not apply for or accept military or intelligence uh, monies for African studies in any form. And what was the reaction of right-wingers and, and maybe also people at the center, the more nationalist-inclined you know, you know, politicians? You know a traitor when you see one, right? I mean, <laughs> it, those who are not with us are against us. Uh, and that was a clear, uh, a clear, clear feeling that, um, and so I think as a result of that, there's been a kind of divorce between the military and intelligence structures of the U.S. government and the Africanist community. They use the languages we, we do. The, the African Study Centers put uh, forward more languages than the Defense Intelligence Agency, the Defense Language Institute, the Foreign Service Institute can put together in the U.S. government. So they use our our, our resources and uh, and so they uh, they use our, uh, our writings as, as well. But they don't have us as employees uh, to do the work. And, and it's interesting because the Latin American studies people, you mentioned the scholar in Bolivia, considered that, but the Latin American centers could not agree. And so they did not adopt the policy, nor did the Middle East studies centers, nor did the Southeast Asian centers, et cetera, et cetera. The Africanists are the only ones. And so in many ways, they are, they are seen as a deviant that they have um, uh, have not done this. And in these post-September 11th times, that must create all sorts of problems for African study centers in the U.S. Uh, I think it, it has in, uh, there, there has been several efforts, including by a congressman here in Michigan, uh, to create investigating committees that uh, can look at these centers and see if they are balanced or unbiased in their presentation of their um, of what they do that their suspicion is that they are uh, anti-american and that this needs to be rooted out 
I pointed out to one of them the other day that yes, there is a lack of balance in our center and if you want us to uh, be more balanced, we're going to have to install some more Marxist courses because we have the, the left is very underrepresented um, in our uh, in our center. I don't think that's what they had in mind. <laughs> it's quite a cheeky response, but I like it. <laughs> so at any rate, there's, um, I think this is, not only did this become the uh, policy of the African Studies Centers, but the more than 50 African Studies programs in the Association of African Studies programs adopted the same policy, and so did the African Language Teachers Association, and so did the African Studies Association nationally. So it's been an astonishingly uh, concomitant um, um, response by a lot of different Africanists who had a similar perspective that the military history in Africa and uh, was not the way in to either deal with Africa's problems uh, or for us to be uh, to help our government to be intelligent about Africa. Yeah, I think that's a really important point uh, to clarify again that the Africanists in the U.S. really uh, support openness transparency, the use of uh, specialist knowledge for equal partnerships with Africans. Uh, what we do not support is operating in secrecy, uh, supporting uh, covertly or overtly the security services, and uh, working on behalf of U.S. foreign policy goals. I think that's, that's very, very important. And that is the position of the African Studies Association in the United States, thanks to the work of uh, ACAS and, and, and others. Uh, since March 31st, 1993, there is a motion that uh, uh, has been policy uh, not to take money, again, from uh, the military uh, and intelligence services of uh, the United States. But at the same time, we are striving to produce this knowledge about Africa and Africans and to disseminate it and to do it right, in a, as cooperative a way as possible with, with our African partners. Well, uh, what well, we say, yeah. by the way, to our military fr uh, friends is, you know, uh, we are not interested to be part of the intelligence uh, operation, but we want to cooperate with you in making you more intelligent about Africa, and we will do that with our own resources. We don't need you, 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 you to pay for that, and uh, that will be our service as good Americans. Well, on that uh, uh, great line, uh, David, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Now for the calendar of events on the MSU campus. All of these are free and open to the public. There's a public lecture by one of Africa's leading intellectuals, Ashil Mbembe. Monday, March 17th, 4.30 to 6 p.m. in the MSU Union, Parlor C, which is a space located on the second floor. Ashil Mbembe is a Cameroonian intellectual. He's a professor of history and political science at Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa, author of many books and numerous articles. And his most important book, I think, is On the Post-Colony, published in 2001. On Thursday, March 20th, in the International Center, room 201 at 12 noon, Professor Robert Edgar of African Studies at Howard University in Washington, D.C. will give a talk entitled Representations of Zulus in America, 1880s to 1940. And finally, as part of the New African Film Series at MSU on Thursday, March 27th at 7.30 p.m., Snyder Phillips Residential College Theater, this is Nollywood a film from Nigeria about the local uh, video producing industry. 
For more information about Africa events on campus, go to africa.msu.edu. Well, that brings today's program to a close. Please join us again in two weeks when Bob Edgar of Howard University joins us to talk about his lifetime's work as both a historian and an activist in Southern Africa's quest for political and cultural liberation. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Chris Johnson, Brian Blyton, and Alicia Scheel. For more information about this show and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. If you have any comments or suggestions for future shows, please send us an email message at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>